Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Are you ready for heart-stopping, toe-tingling, coma-inducing levels of drama and romance? Okay, great. Well, you can find it all included with Prime Video. Check out Expat starring Nicole Kidman, The Idea of You starring Anne Hathaway, and the history-bending romanticy My Lady Jane, which will leave you speechless forever. Or till the end of the episode. Find your happy place. Prime Video. Restrictions apply. See Amazon.com slash Amazon Prime for details. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to the Bike Radar Podcast, brought to you by the team behind BikeRadar.com, Cycling Plus, and MBUK magazines. If you enjoy this episode, please subscribe. And if you can do so, leave us a rating on your podcast provider of choice. It really helps us reach other cyclists like you. Welcome to the Bike Radar Podcast. My name is George Scott, the Editor-in-Chief of Bike Radar, and today I'm joined by Jack Evans, digital writer on Bike Radar, and James Witts, a cycling journalist and author, who is also a regular contributor to Bike Radar and Cycling Plus, and specifically for the uh, reference of this podcast, the author of a new book, Riding with the Rocketman, One Man's Journey on the Shoulders of Cycling Giants. Now, it's Tour de France time, which also means it's a tap to tour time with the Sportive that sees amateur riders take on the stage of the Tour de France taking place this Sunday. This year, it runs from Anmas to Morzine over stage 14 of the Tour, 152 kilometers over five climbs in the Alps. So in this podcast, we're going to take a closer look at how to ride an event like the Tap to Tour, or indeed any major European Grand Fondo. So Jack and James are two seasoned Grand Fondo riders. James, I'll start with you because you do have your new book out published this week or last week? Uh, yeah, it's been out for a few weeks via the good folk at Bloomsbury Sport. Excellent. So tell me about your Tap to Tour story because that's at the heart of the new book. Mm, it was painful, George. It was painful. So yeah, the the idea for the book was really a chap like myself who suddenly realises they're not 25 and is actually 45 and those little bits on the back are sort of tend to be fatty deposits and not just this like creaking. So I thought I needed a challenge to sort of wake me from my slumber, shall we say, and a tap to tour seemed to be the great challenge. A good narrative for the book as well. Tour de France, 
everyone knows Tour de France. They probably know those words more than cycling in a way. So I penciled in 2022's Etape du Tour. That was the goal for the book. And then the distance was about 170k. I wasn't too concerned about that relatively. I've, I've done sort of sportives, but, but background sort of running and triathlon, uh, albeit more completer than a competer. So a certain pace to my um, my movement, shall we say. But there, it was the mountains. So it was about five kilometers, 5,000 meters of climbing. It started uh, straight up, well, it's Briançon to Alpe d'Huez, basically. So you went up the Galibier, which I think it was about 30K, 25 to 30K, about 5, 6, uh, 6%. Obviously, a lot of your listeners will be aware of the Galibier. Flew down there. Uh, and then you hit the Quad Affair, which was similar distance to the Galibier, but a little bit steeper. And it was certainly hotter by that stage. Then another long descent, really flattened out a bit. And then you finished off without Duez, which again is obviously quite a mythical mythical climb mm, what a stage this was the stage that tom pickcock won from the break is that right that is the one yeah and many people did see the resemblance between <laughs> my my weaving descent on that long hot day but yeah i mean pickcock was incredible wasn't it? i mean I, I watched that over and over for the book because the the premise of the book was really i'd, I'd sort of spend time with the professionals see what they do and uh, you know project them as the supermen and then see what this every man could apply to his own self, but also seeing some experts who are probably more attuned to recreational, right? So the the, the final chapter does cover Pigcock's descent in relatively, um, you know, a deep dive into it. And it was clearly just, he's, he's incredible, isn't he, really? Absolutely. So you tapped into some of the greatest minds in cycling to prepare for the the Etap and have shared your experience in the book and hopefully we can tap into some knowledge in, in this podcast. But Jack, we'll, we'll turn to you next. You've also ridden at least a couple of major events, not the Etap to Tour, I think, but the Dragon Ride in Wales, a, a major grand funder here in the UK. And then also the Oak Route, which is a, was it a three-day event in the, the Swiss Alps? Yeah, that was um, Oak Route Davos, which is yeah a, a three-day um, event finishing with a mountain time trial. But that's quite a different format to the Dragon Ride, which I did the 200-kilometer version in 2021 and the near 300-kilometer one in uh, last year, 2022, which has 4,500 meters of climbing in the Brecon Beacons. Um, so yeah, those are um, probably, I think the, the the Dragon Devil, appropriately named, is probably the UK's hardest sportif. Um I think the Dartmoor Classic or the Fred Witten um, might dispute that, but they're both a bit shorter and not quite as hard um, in my view. Um, yeah, the Oat Route um, is a really different format because it's done over, um, it's done on time segments rather than overall time. So you've got to bear that in mind for pacing. Um, but yeah, I think the, the Dragon Ride, um, the opportunity came up to ride it again this year and um, I definitely decided not to. Um, I think it's one of those ones, it's kind of a bucket list ride. Um, you do it, you do it once and meet your target for it and I'd, I'd say that's enough um i set out to ride it in 10 hours which required a near 30 kilometer hour average i just just squeaked in um but um ed laverack this year um uh, former national hill climb champion showed how fast you can go i think he did it in just over nine hours so it is a fast course well i, th I think you're doing yourself a slight disservice there as well nearly 30k an hour for 300 kilometers with more than 4,000 meters of climbing is uh, an incredible effort so uh, I think we've established Jack as the superhuman in this in this podcast room, and and, Definitely. and James and I as the, <laughs> as the every every man of the pod. 
So you've referenced a few of the UK events there. I think we, you know, we're going to focus on the, the events that you've written, Jack, and, and the attack for you, James. But really, the, the advice that we're hoping to share could be applied to any major sportive or grand fondo, whether that's in the UK, North America, South America, Europe. But James, we'll start with you in terms of your training. So you said that you're um, very much of a, a completer rather than a competer. So I assume your ambition was to, to get round and get round as comfortably as possible. So where did you start in terms of training? How much time did you give yourself to prepare? Okay, so well, the, the journey really started at the start of January. So I tapped into a coach called Phil Mosley, who he, uh, he does a lot of work with Training Peaks. And I know Phil from sort of triathlon, when I used to edit a triathlon magazine, 220, as part of this, this family with Bike Radar many moons ago. And so Phil set me up on a six-month um, training plan, and all the sessions would link through to uh, I had a what bike sort of on loan. So the uh, majority of my sessions were indoor sessions. I fed through and they fed through to Zwift as well. So I, I did um, a hell of a lot of indoor riding, but then that was complemented with, I get it's quite a traditional format, really the long sort of weekend ride, which progressively got longer and longer. And it was very much, uh, again, quite a, a traditional model of three weeks of progress, one week ease off and just keep doing that. So that was the fundamentals of the training. Uh, I, I started the journey actually with a, a bike fit because I always bang on about that <laughs> many of the features I write because I just think it, it's so essential. And the money we know you can spend in this sport, I think actually a bike fit is relatively you know, affordable uh, compared to some of the items out there. So I went up to see Phil Burt, who used to work with Team Sky, who's now based at Manchester Health Institute and Performance. There was a lot of recreational riders. So Phil was great. He's a um, lovely Cornishman, very big hands, I know he is, but <laughs> he sort of, he went for, a, for the full suite of bike fitting, uh, sorted me out some insoles because I had a bit of a dodgy right foot, gave me all the dimensions for my bikes. And then about three days later, a message went round on our WhatsApp group saying, um, I've just seen two lads ride off with a couple uh, like on their bikes, but also rolling two bikes with them. And we've had a history of um, bike theft, shall we say, where we used to live in Bristol. And um, I looked out and our, the bottom of our garage door had been peeled up like oh, a, no. a tuna yeah, tin. So we'd had four bikes nicked, in, including the, uh, the one that I was <laughs> supposed to do this journey on. And so it, it wasn't the most uh, auspicious uh, start, shall we say, to the uh, the event. But that aside, yeah, going back to the training, the fundamentals were <laughs> three weeks on, ease back, progress, progress, progress. Three or four sessions in the week, I was adamant that, I mean, my background, I love football, sort of love cycling. Part of the idea of the book was that I know in cycling, it can be quite myopic, but it's like where loads of people like cycling, but also like other sports as well. So I was sort of waving that flag. So I didn't want to give up my Monday night five-side football. So I, you know, and both Phil Burr and Phil Mosley were like, well, actually, it could benefit you. I mean, it's a good, you know, anaerobic session anyway, <laughs> interval session. Uh, and it does strengthen my slightly dodgy ankle. So, yeah, five-a-side, uh, progressive training, and then really up to, you know, the event in July. Mm. So it sounds like you took quite a, a structured approach with the indoor and the outdoor training. Jack, with the Dragon ride, I mean, that's an altogether different beast, particularly the Dragon Devil, nearly 300 kilometers, as you said earlier. So how was your preparation for that event? Did you take a structured approach? Or I know you ride a, ride a lot anyway, so were you happy to build up the distance for your, your regular training? 
Yeah, I actually took quite a similar approach to James, I'd say, um, focusing on having a really good winter, but not overdoing it. So keeping it interesting with a bit of slightly cross racing, um, some challenges like the Rafa Festive 500, which is a good sort of um, early, early, very early season training camp in effect. Um, and then after quite a long week bikepacking in the start of March, uh, which I thought was like a really, really good base block, um, I started to structure the training then. Um, yeah, use, again, using Training Peak Strava. Uh, power meters um i did yeah i started to ride quite a lot more outside then but i did kind of think yeah i'm gonna have to plan some longer rides because although i was kind of regularly doing maybe 350 kilometers a week gonna need to bump that up a, up a little bit so i did plan in some rides that were starting about starting out about 100 miles and then um going up to about um 200 200 kilometers making sure they're as hilly as possible so for me in birmingham i was heading out into the shropshire hills and um, doing some really hard climbs like the burway Aston bank abden berth and kind of getting around 4,000 kilometers in those rides and i think doing a few of those psychologically was really important because you know what it's going to feel like after you've done 3,000 kilometers and how how much your back's going to hurt how much your legs are going to hurt um, but I probably did my last really hard ride like that about three weeks out and then started to reduce the volume a little bit, um, keeping the intensity, which I, th which I actually think is really important. I think, yeah, doing some kind of intervals to raise your FTP is so important because if you can stay below your, um, your threshold power on climbs, you're going to save a lot of energy um, and yeah, burn, f uh, burn through fewer carbohydrate stores. So the long rides are important, but don't forget maybe joining um, some uh, chain gangs or doing some actual dedicated interval sessions is really important. Excellent. Well, that actually leads me on to my next question that I was going to ask you, James. It, it sounds like you took quite a traditional approach in terms of starting early, building up your base fitness. But did you follow a similar approach to Jack and that you wanted to include that intensity as well? You mentioned that you did a lot of indoor sessions. I can imagine they were they were shorter. And was that with a goal to prepare yourself for the climbs that you were going to face because you can be climbing for an hour or two hours in an event like the attack mm. even more hours as it turned out <laughs> uh, absolutely and I totally agree with jack really just to raise that func functional threshold of of power uh, they were really um important but i think like jack said just to mix it up as well again part of the whole idea of the the book as well was a sort of I say a no pro journey so it was it was an extremely diluted pro, pro calendar so I did cyclocross you know events over in Canesham in the uh, January myself and a couple of mates went over to Flanders to do the sportif in April um, I did a time trial in Dursley for and then sort of just the the actual tour and actually I think you got to remember that as well that actually we can all be buried in sort of you know data and you know, boost these physiological parameters, but you know, we're not being paid to do this. It has well, to be fun. Yeah. Well, actually to be fair, I guess I've got the book out of it. So I'm a pro, <laughs> <laughs> but it, it has to be fun. And I must admit at times, maybe through my journey, I probably did stuff a bit too much solo. I regret that. Like my, in a way, my most enjoyable was the tour of Flanders with my mates. Whereas when I did a tap, it was just me. I thought, no, I'm going to be stressed. I know I will. And actually, I didn't have anyone to, vet, you know, just stress out sort of thing, which probably builds in your head. So, um, but yeah, I think keeping it fun and um, definitely cyclocross. That was, I mean, it's it's a great workout. And I looked at studies and anyone who's ever done cyclocross, you know, it's an hour of hard work. And basically the studies mirror that, just saying that, you know, that you're on your threshold, you're pushing the threshold. I actually did an event with uh, Matt Baird, editor of Cycling Plus, and I destroyed him at the start. I thought, yes. Yeah, got him. And then I was like, hang on, who's that just ridden past me as I got hotter and hotter and the uh, 
the little scamp rode away from us. <laughs> but but yes, keep it fun. I know that sounds a bit trite, but I, I think it that can't be lost. Allstate wants to remind fans that mayhem is everywhere. Like when your fantasy league meets up at your house. Everything's great until the hot plate gets too hot for the tablecloth. Now your kitchen's up in smoke. And if you don't have the right home insurance coverage, the cost to fix this is anything but a fantasy. So switch to Allstate, save money, and get protected from mayhem like this. Not available in every state. Based on coverage selected, subject to terms, conditions, and availability. Savings vary. Want to be more active this summer? Sierra helps you save on everything from swimsuits to stand-up paddleboards, tennis rackets to fishing tackle. And if that doesn't float your boat, we also have pool floats. Sierra, let's get moving to your local store, like now. Go! Awaken your senses with a curiously refreshing Hendrix Cucumber Lemonade. Curious how? Cue the aroma. Marvelous. Cue the taste. Magnificent. Cue the cucumber. That's the refreshing secret. Hendrix is uncommonly crafted with cucumbers, roses, artistry, and imagination. Other gins are ordinary, but Hendrix is refreshingly curious. Discover Hendrix Gin cocktail recipes at HendrixGin.com. Please drink the unusual responsibly. Hendrix Gin, 44% alcohol by volume. Bottled and imported by William Grant Sons, New York, New York. Copyright 2024. Yeah, I, th- I think that's really important from the events that I've ridden as well. You know, clearly we can be very motivated to do well and produce a, a good performance in the context of a, a good performance for anyone. But um, it is meant to be fun at the end of the day and people pay a lot of money to go and do these do these events. Um, Jack, just with you and, and the Dragon Ride, because this was a, a huge distance, did you do like a preparation event, a test event to test out your training, test out your fitness, your nutrition, which we'll come on to in a minute, or did you go straight into the Dragon Devil as your, as your 300k ride? Um, yeah, I didn't do a 300km ride in training, but I tried to replicate the demands of the day itself um, with quite an intense weekend um, at the start of June with the Dragon Ride being, I think, on June 19th. So, so I did a um, quite a fast club ride on a Thursday night, then rode 140 kilometers to Chepstow. Um, got picked up in Chepstow, um, plonked in Pembrokeshire, and then from there I did another 100-kilometre ride, quite hilly, and then rode back to Birmingham, which was about 230 kilometres um, with 4,500 metres of climbing. So that, I felt, after I'd done that and managed to get through it, I thought, yeah, that's produced a similar amount of fatigue as the Dragon Ride, and, um, yeah, over quite similar terrain. Um, I suppose you could do a run through 300-kilometre, maybe an Audax in training, um, but you've got to bear in mind that to recover from that, um, even if you take it quite easy, you might need four to six weeks. So you'd have to time it quite far out. Um, I think one thing I would have learnt for would maybe do some events of that distance, like, like an Audax, like a Randonnée Audax, 200 kilometres, um, just for a bit of variety as well. Um, I think like James said, um, it's important not to do too many solo long rides, particularly on the same route. I think yeah, going to an event, trying different terrain, new terrain is invigorating and but yeah, makes those eight-hour, nine-hour rides a bit more enjoyable. Was there a moment for you, James, where you've started your training in January, you've done all the events that you've mentioned, you've built up the the intensity but to prepare for the summer. Was there a moment where you thought, like, I've got this, I'm ready? Were you confident going into the etap itself? Yes and no. I I think physically I felt pretty good. I I say historically I always trained but not, particularly structured i'd say i'm more generalist you know so i like a run i like a cycle i play football but not sort of hour in so um when it came to sort of say the weight i probably lost five six 
kg, which relatively wasn't huge, but I went from, I think, about 92 to 86. Um, but I think because of that past of doing stuff, I didn't expect to lose too much. Although as an aside, the time, <laughs> the two times I probably did lose weight really was I had two blocks where I thought, no, I'm not going to drink anything, you know, and actually it was like, oh, irritatingly, that was the only times <laughs> I probably lost significant weight. So physiologically, I felt pretty good going into the event. I think it was, well, I guess around this time, sort of early July, it, what I was probably more concerned about was just the pure logistics or not more concerned, but at that moment of just even just getting to the start line, which when it's a point to point, especially like the tap is, and obviously many um, sporties are, you've got to obviously have the logistics of, okay, one hotel here, one hotel there, get, you know, and, um, you know, it, it, my mind was quite populated with other stuff at the moment. We were moving house. We couldn't find a house, you know, the reality of life, I guess, sort of kicked in. So yeah, physically, I felt pretty good and I was quite pleased that, you know, I, I'm in my mid forties. I, I feel relatively strong, but I was concerned about maybe my lower back giving in as the, the mileage went up. And I guess I can credit Phil Burt for that. Cause when I did get a, you know, a new bike, put in the, the measurements and all that, and that seemed, um, all good. So yeah, I would say physically I felt, um, relatively ready to go, I think as, and, and ready for, what I was expecting and as much as I I couldn't let it completely take over my life. I couldn't do huge mileages in that. I just I just didn't have the time. Um and also I'm very aware that when you do like I've done a couple marathons in the past, when you do really long efforts, you know, then you're absolutely shattered for the rest of the <laughs> the day. And it's like I can't I couldn't afford that with work wise and what everything else that was going on. So I was as as fit as I thought I might be, should we say. Did you put a, a cap on the number of hours that you were doing per week? It, I don't think it probably went more than 10, 11, you know, maybe up to 12. It was, in one way, you had the, the structured side, and I think the longest ride went up to about six hours. So that was probably about a 10-hour then, but then I would often commute as well on my bike, and I had this hour, hour and a half of five-side football on a Monday. So it was probably at most, say, 10 hours structured, and then other bits to complement it so yeah i i in in hindsight i could have probably squeezed out a few more but um again the whole idea was really not to you know leave me divorced by the end of this uh, journey that's got a key objective <laughs> yeah <laughs> uh, jack just one more for you on on training before we move on to nutrition did you do anything different to prepare for a multi-day ride so the hope route davos as a three-day ride it sounds like from your dragon devil training or i don't know which came first that you're very comfortable doing back to back to back big rides over a number of days but yeah anything different in your preparation yeah so the oat route came in um september late september whereas the dragon riders was in at the end of june um yeah so i'd been actually training for hill climb season um before the oat route cause in the uk that runs september october um so my the sort of the volume i've been doing had diminished probably down to about 15 hours from 20 plus uh, but i had been working on more intensity um so yeah reco recovery i was still recovering well but probably not didn't have quite a strong base as as previously but i think for those those rides most people are looking at four to six hours in the oak route davos it's 200k stages so they're not massive but it does help if you've actually have been doing some intensity because on the climbs even though they're not so steep in the swiss alps you are going to be well above your threshold for 
up to an hour. So yeah, be, having done some more in, intensity work, uh, I think really helped for those. Well, nothing better to prepare for 2,000 meter climbs in the Swiss Alps than two minute climbs in, uh, in, in the UK. Uh, don't quite have the altitude here, but it does show between the two of you and myself in preparing for events, you don't necessarily need big climbs to prepare for big climbs. Uh, it's all about the intensity. And I think indoor training is a, a great way to replicate that as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And actually, George, just an aside, I think with the indoor training, uh, what really helped as well as the race got closer was you just get really hot. And actually to acclimatize for some of these events and even in the UK, sort of obviously recently we've had a real hot spell and um, it looks like there might be another one coming. Actually, if you just don't use the fan and just ride indoors, um, that sort of really helps. And the, the heat acclimation, I think there's a lot to be sort of said for that. I mean, I went to the heat chamber over at Silverstone, spent a bit of time with Precision Hydration, who again put me through a battery of tests and they... Um, you know, they, they have tales, I think, of folk doing similar, but maybe putting the heating on. In, I thought, well, they've clearly got a bigger budget than I have with the gas bills <laughs> as, as they are. But, I mean, I think the the heat preparation side, the indoor training really helps for that as well. Mm. Well, Jack, let's move on to nutrition. I know you keep a, a keen eye on fitness and training across the board. You are the, the, the writer behind many of our fitness and training articles on Bike Radar. Um, you've also been taking part in a study more recently that looks at the use of bicarbon cycling. We'll discuss that in a future pod. But how did you prepare for the nutritional demands of the events that you tackled? Um, I think the oat route's a bit more simple because, um, yeah, riding for four hours, you don't need to consume quite so many carbs. It doesn't deplete your glycogen stores so much. But yeah, for the uh, dragon ride, so I've got the stats here. I burnt, um, did seven and a half um, thousand kilojoules of work, which equates to about 8,000 calories. Um, that's quite a lot of food. <laughs> that's a lot of calories. That, yeah. So, and yeah, training your gut, which which basically means enabling yourself to eat a lot of food on the bike. Um, this is probably kind of equivalent to two bananas an hour or maybe a couple of energy bars as well as, um, as the race goes on, maybe a bit of energy drink as well. If you just go straight into that, you will not cope. You'll feel really unwell. And actually you you can sort of overeat and then then bonk because you can't absorb the energy. Um, so yeah, that's why another reason why these long rides are really important. It's to um, prepare your, prepare your di digestive system to be able to handle that much food and also work out what works for you. Um, I don't really like the sugary stuff too much early on, um, but yeah, I like to keep things really simple, uh, low fat, low protein. But some people actually like, even in Ordaxes, swear by some kind of fattier, saltier food. So yeah, it's really important to work out um, what, what you can handle and also think about what's going to be at the feed stations on the um, at, at the event. Having done the Dragon Devil 200 the year before, I knew that the, the salty new potatoes were really, really good. Ooh. So um, yeah, a bag of those at each um, food stop was sort of my go-to and avoided the sandwiches and stuff because they have a bit more fat and protein, which I didn't think I needed. Um, and then, yeah, you stock up on bars and gels, um, fill, fill, your, uh, fill maybe one bottle with energy drink um, and then, yeah, keep going. But yeah, you don't want to, certainly don't want to be eating too much in one go on a hilly sporty for Grand Fondo because sometimes the organisers put the feed station at the bottom of the next climb and you've got to go off it. Um, so it's important to kind of keep nibbling and never have to eat too much at the same time. Um, and yeah, as the event goes on, perhaps in the last four hours, you maybe want to increase your carbohydrate intake from maybe 60 grams to 90 grams if you can handle it. Bearing in mind that you'll probably need dual source carbs then, a mixture of glucose, fructose or maltodextrin in order to be able to digest it. 
Um, and yeah, think about caffeine gels as well. If if you can handle those, always try them before <laughs> sampling some at the, the feed stations. Um, yeah, I'm quite quite. I have quite high caffeine tolerance, as my colleagues will attest to. So um, yeah, I definitely sort of started consuming caffeine on the Dragon Ride in the last half, and then. I felt that I felt I was really flying actually on the last couple of climbs, the Regos and the bulk. Um, so yeah, just um, don't try anything new on the day and tr try plenty of stuff in training. Mm, great insight there. I think particularly for a longer event to train your gut, as you say, and find out what works for you. Um, you mentioned the feed stations there. Some of the events that I've done, particularly the likes of the Maratona on a feed station, the whole town or the whole village turns out and you might have a band playing and the local delicacies and uh, it, it can be a real... Um, can be a lot of fun but James what was your approach for the tap at, at feed stations did you just make it a quick pit stop Formula One style or did you soak up the atmosphere <laughs> yeah. uh, I, I think I was there for at least an hour to be fair <laughs> well it, unfortunately it, it, the feeding didn't go as planned because um, I, I won't go into too much detail you know in case obviously people want to read the book and you know it's, it's before 9pm but <laughs> the day before I'd um, uh, so I'd interviewed Andy Hampston before so who won the, I think it was 1992 um, Haute d'Huez stage, which followed a similar path to mine, which is Galibier, quite a fair, and Haute d'Huez, but I think they started in Sestriere maybe. And Andy, I think, won Giro in 1988. And he was saying he felt um, he had unfinished business at the 92 event because he'd been undone by a lasagna the time before. And he said the whole team had just gone down with food poisoning. And... I think they were sponsored by Eddie Merck's bikes at the time. And Eddie Merck's was in the team car saying, Andy's going to win today. And he was like, I feel awful. So he, he finished well down the field and he said, you know, oh, I'm sure it was a dodgy lasagna. Anyway, I thought, right, I'm not going to have cheese before. Um, I'd forgotten this by the time on the Saturday night and I'd had this bit of pizza. Fondue? No, pizza. Fair okay. pizza, yeah. And actually it was a theme in the book, which uh, make sure you do plan better than I did. We're actually feeding at the event like the night before. Restaurants were full and I just, that did slip through my net. I had a couple of bits of pizza and basically I was I was up all night, shall we say, without getting too much either. Got about an hour or two sleep and then proceeded to say projectile four or five times i was stood there about 6 a.m in my cycling shorts looking really sorry for myself in the mirror thinking oh i don't think i can do this and i like kept seeing this book deadline in my head i thought oh <laughs> I'm, I'm gonna have to give it a go so it sort of it threw the nutrition certainly for the first half out the window because i thought well i'll just i had planned to do um a bottle of electrolytes and a bottle of carbs to start uh, and I always like to do, I, I sort of, I, I prefer actually generally to focus on the electrolyte drinks or the water and usually take actually more carbs either via gels or, or bars. I find I can sort of measure it a bit easier. But um, I thought, well, I'll go with that because it might be a bit more palatable. But I don't think I really had a gel in the first couple hours and I just spun out quite slowly at the Galibier. But as Jack was saying, I think um, this practicing like this 60 and then up to 90 grams and you're hearing reports these are the pros admittedly but up to 120 grams again probably you'd certainly have to practice that beforehand but i was at the science and cycling conference in bilbao last week and that seemed to be one of the themes of why riders uh you know probably getting a bit quicker is just you know they're they're more loaded in the legal sense shall we say but yeah when it came to the feed zones in all honesty like the last one and like jack said i mean a, a slight 
sadistic streak to the organisers, you think. So often they do seem to be placed before the mountains. This was for Outdoors, but I mean, peaches became absolute golden nectar. It was so hot. And so, I, I mean, whoever decided that was um, brilliant. But actually the Tour of Flanders, I mean, that that you could put on weight because there are so many cakes. And like, I, I, I'm not actually, I've got too much of a sweet tooth, but if you have, you have got to be sort of quite careful, you know, or just side because you can. And I think actually the Quermont followed one of them. And it was like, oh, you, yeah, let's be careful here, guys. <laughs> but I think, yeah, if you can aim up to about 90 grams, you've got to practice this to see what that does it equals in reality, which often might be like free gels or, like Jack said, maybe a couple a couple bananas. And remember the hydrating side as well, which arguably is, you know, of even more importance in a hot race. A clear bottle is good in that respect, I would say, so you can just see how much you're drinking as a little takeaway. <laughs> yeah, that's a great tip. I think it's it's very easy to overeat or, or undereat, but I think in particular very easy to underhydrate, particularly if it is a hot, a hot, humid summer's day, as, as it often is the case in these events. Um, well, let's move on to bikes and, and the equipment that you used. James, you, you said that you had a bike fit at the start of the process. It sounds like that was really key for you beyond that and replacing the bike that you unfortunately had stolen how much attention did you pay to the bike and equipment that you that you used or, or was the main focus on fitness and nutrition and the physiological side of things arguably it was more on the physiological side i mean my background is I, I'm probably the only person in the country to do english literature and sports science and so i i, I have a real um keen interest in the physiology at least the professional <laughs> side anyway so that was probably more of a focus the gear side i ended up using a, a vitus which was great they wiggle kindly loaned us one to you know do the challenge on um i would say i probably should have paid more attention to sort of just gear setups and ratios that is certainly an achilles heel and i felt i didn't have enough gears on certainly out to airs. i can mean you remember it, sorry can you remember what gearing you had <sighs> I can't remember it specifically, which I know is a bit poor. I think I think the it was like up to 30 teeth on the cassette. And I think I needed, you know, as big as you get, what, 34 or even even higher. In in all honesty, I probably needed an e-bike by the time. <laughs> but I would say the gear ratios, that was a, a major oversight, which I mean, I know it's the attacks coming up. But I, if any of the listeners are doing time, make sure you really focus on that because you know, you, you can't, you can do the intensity of climbs in the UK, but you you still can't do those climbs. So you might be able to match it physiologically to a degree, but not that steepness. And as we, as we know, the cadence changes, everything changes. Uh, other stuff, I went pretty um, parochial, really. I mean, I had, you know, a nice pinnacle sort of cycle top, but it was like form fitting. So I, I felt relatively covered in that respect i mean I, I love electric group sets i mean i'm not a, a, a sort of particularly techy sort of writer but i do love an electronic group set even that little whir is strangely arousing i guess <laughs> but um no i probably the tech side i would imagine jack play, paid far more attention than i should have well jack i know that you made some changes to your bike for the hope route i think you wrote an article about it which we'll we'll put a link to that in the podcast description. But yeah, tell us about the changes that you made to your bike for the three days in the mountains. 
Yeah, so I used uh, my Canyon Ultimate CFSLX, which I rode the I've ridden the Dragon Ride on two occasions with. Um, I actually did the Dragon Ride with an eleven twenty eight uh, cassette with a fifty two thirty six uh, crank set, and I felt that was absolutely fine. I think on the shorter climbs, I didn't actually go into the twenty eight, even on the Devil Staircase, which has a couple of twenty percent hairpins, just because. It's to be honest, it's, it's a bit more of a power climb. You're not looking to spin up it really. You just need the grunt to get around the bends. However, um, when it came to the long alpine climbs uh, like the um, Albula uh, Fluella Pass, um, you're climbing uh, for 50 minutes to an hour. And although it's never really getting that nasty, it's never really getting above 13, 14% for that long. I'd actually switched to um, an 11.32 cassette with a longer cage derailleur on my um, SRAM Red ETAP setup. And that was a godsend. I was surprised how much I needed it. Um, yeah, I think the I think the altitude as well, and um, being at two thousand three hundred meters, I just think that that made me need that extra gear. And um, sometimes I'd switch down and think, "Oh, really glad I've got that thirty two there." Um, just just to be able to keep a high cadence. I think if you're falling below seventy RPM um, for more than sort of ten minutes or so, that's that's going to get really hard. And you want to keep it as aerobic as possible, which a high cadence enables you to do, rather than trying to sort of grunt up a little bit too much um and actually for the for the dragon ride um one of my club mates at uh, gorilla coffee cycling in birmingham um rode it on a giant tcr but with a 1134 cassette and he said even that wasn't too big i mean some you do see some people doing these um sportives and grand fondos actually with gravel bike gearing i mean we saw roglic um and i think uh, vingegaard as well um using a, a one by shram setup um at grand tours and um I wouldn't discount that. I think it would be a little bit overkill for 300 kilometers, but yeah, bear in mind that there's, you almost can't go too big. Mm. Well, yeah, you, you just mentioned there Primoz Roglic using the SRAM Explore gravel setup for the, the mountain time trial at the Giro. And I think there has been a real change in mindset around gearing and a change of options. You know, for most of the latest group sets, you now can fit a, a 32, 32, 34 even, um, tooth sprocket cassette without switching out the derailleur in many cases so i would absolutely agree to anyone listening to this doing the attack this weekend might be too late but um certainly for next year or any major events fit the easiest gear and you can find or afford i think it's probably the best advice um in terms of comfort jack your canyon uh ultimate is is, is your go-to bike clearly were there any other tweaks that you made to try and account for the distance or the the multi-day aspect of your events um i kept it i kept a few spaces underneath the stem um which I think is a good idea on a bike that's more of an all-rounder than an endurance bike. But if you've got an endurance bike um, with a fairly relaxed geometry, I think that's fine if you're looking to get round. If you're looking to go a bit faster, I'd consider yeah, trying to get a little bit more aerodynamic because ultimately that will save you energy. But um, I think, yeah, I've, I, de I definitely wouldn't want to be too aggressive at the front end just to save your lower back, really. Um, yeah, comfort, I'd go for the best um, bib shorts and saddle you can afford. Um, and make, but do make sure you do plenty of testing to work out which uh, bib shorts work for you because the larger chamois pad won't necessarily be the most comfortable when you're hot and sweaty after eight hours. Um, those were the only changes I make. I mean, it is a very comfortable bike. It's, yeah, full carbon, um, 28 mil tyres, which I definitely go for. I think, yeah, again, get the best tyres you can get. It'll help you on some quite loose gravelly descents as well as being comfortable and fast um and yeah it's just going to save your hands and, and back at the end of the day mm. so to move on to pacing and and strategy i suppose on on the day or across multiple days i've ridden the attack and a few other european events and in my experience it's very very easy to get carried away 
not only with the adrenaline that's flooding through your body, but the fact that some of these events, Italian Grand Fondos in particular, they're basically semi-pro races and they're ridden like semi-pro races at the front. So actually, Jack, I'll, I'll start with you with the Dragon Devil and the Hope Route. Did you try and keep a lid on things at the start or did you get swept away in the uh, in, in the buzz of the event? Uh, yeah, with the Dragon Devil, you start quite early in the morning. I think I went off at about 10 to 7 and the groups are quite sparse. It's not Unsurprisingly, perhaps it's uh, not one of the most subscribed events of that the Dragon Ride offers. Um, so it's quite quite sparse at the start. Um, I think that was good just because, yeah, it is quite quick heading out of Patalba into the Bracken Beacons through the valleys. Um, so yeah, you definitely don't want to um, go go too hard early on. Bearing in mind that the Black Mountain, the first major climb, doesn't come until about an hour. And I actually used Garmin's Power Guide, um, setting it at a power that I knew I could sustain sort of mid-zone two for, for 10 hours, which I think is a really, really good idea. Um, if you don't have a power meter, you can either, yeah, try and keep your breathing as steady as possible on the climbs or keep keep your heart rate in zone two. Uh, you definitely don't want to be going into zone three too much on the climbs. Um, but yeah, that was that was a strategy I used. And I tried not to think too much about average speed despite having a goal because it can, you know that the second half of, of the of the event is a lot harder. So if your average speed is quite high early on, you can get a bit carried away with that. And yeah, there are there are pace lines you can join. Um, I'd be quite wary of that for two reasons. Um, I think if you're riding with a club, you know people's capabilities in group, but on an event, you don't know how much club riding people have done, how safe they are in a group. Um, so I'd be quite careful of that. And another thing is some people just treat it as a bit of a weird chain gang in the middle of, in with about 200 kilometers to go so they're really smashing through and i remember at one stage i was riding with um my mate carl from my cycling club and this guy was pulling through about 330 watts and we just he did that another time and we just watched him go we just thought ah, there's, there's no point in this and as it turned out because i'd kept steadier he only beat me by a minute and a half at the end um so he must have really really blown up on the final climb <laughs> so i think there's a lesson there to yeah really try and where you can um, trying to keep below below threshold on the climbs because you're going to be able to climb. You can almost climb all day at zone three, uh, whereas it, when you start going to threshold, you can probably only manage that for an hour to two hours if you're really fit and well fueled. I had a similar experience at the Strada Bianchi Gran Fondo earlier this year in um, March or April, I think it was. A, a group came through, and you know you're, you're keen to use the group and use the draft, but you know I was pushing a little bit hard and. Eventually, I, I kind of jumped out and just went at my own pace. But then also, you know, a little bit down the road, there's a, a big old crash involving a few riders. So you also don't necessarily know the the, the skill level of the riders around you, as well as um, their capabilities um, uh, from a fitness perspective. For you, James, I think you said that you set out on the attack at a steady pace. You know, was that your strategy for out to keep it keep it steady, or did you have a, um, anything more complex? No, than that? it was it was really. I mean, similar to Jack. I think sort of a certain zones of not pushing over threshold. I mean, things were slightly complicated because I was feeling under the weather, shall we say. Um, I think it, it's certainly important for at least a pacing strategy if you've got mountains or very stiff hills. Uh, so that was roughly my strategy was I felt, okay, on the, on the flats, let's almost more by feel sort of thing. So inevitably, especially at a tap, I think, you know, certainly 16,000 people signed up so there's always people around um i think you've got to make sure you it sounds again <laughs> try but leave your ego aside uh, because it is so you know easy to fall into that sort of trap and then you you know once you've blown you've sort of blown but i mean if you i, I was fortunate enough sort of use some garmin power pedals but 
uh, I think feel is a very, you know, you can just go on feel, you know, you know, if you're really pushing it or not, if it's sustainable, they say about the matches, don't they? If you've burnt too many matches, you're sort of done. I, I often still use my heart rate monitor, to be fair. I think the slight unknown still when you do sort of a sportif in the mountains is, you know, we're not Ineos Grenadiers, we're not, you know, uh, UAE, we're not spending loads of time at altitude. So although I did a bit in the altitude centre and I went to Andorra of Ineos, I wasn't really sure how my body would react over like 2,000 metres and when it's 40 degrees plus at roadside. So you have got that unknown. You might have a good strategy, but I think that's where feel really comes into it of like, okay, I might have felt okay going up Cheddar Gorge, but now I'm 2,000 metres up, it's 40 degrees. I'm pushing out the same power and I feel a lot worse. So I think really bear that that in mind. Um, and also just, I mean, if you, <laughs> the event I did, some of the descents were crazy, especially like the Galibia. You, I mean, it just seemed to go on forever. So I guess this is more a gear one. Make sure your brakes are in very con good condition because, and, and your hands actually, because my hands were killing by the end of that, that descent. But yeah, I think, I think feel is, is very underrated. So yeah, follow your power, hit your zones. Don't tip over fresh out too much as you could be done but really keep checking in on yourself, have a bit of an audit from head to toe and um, yeah, and keep feeding as mm. per previous. Yeah, great advice about altitude as well. I think the Galibier is what, well over 2,600, 2,800? Uh, yes, around there, maybe 2,300, 2,5. I, but, you know, it, it, the memory plays tricks, but yeah, it felt high. Mm. <laughs> and once you go, I think it's 2,000 meters really, once you go over that, elevation mm. that's when your your body really does start to play tricks on you and yeah yeah you might have an idea going into the event as what your of what your sustainable power is but i think when when you're at altitude you can see a real disparity between what your heart's doing and what your power's doing and yeah. that's where phil really comes into it yeah absolutely i think the, the trickiness as per book I, I sort of had a chapter on the extreme side of it so it was looking at altitude it was looking at heat Altitude, altitude is so hard to replicate, obviously, at, at sea level. You know, you, I tried out these altitude masks. I think they're called training masks now because I think they realise they're not altitude masks at all. But you know, without being, you know, a, too blatant a plug, if you have got an altitude, you know, like the altitude centre in London near you and you can afford it, that is good prep to actually spend a bit of time in these artificial sort of units. That would be, um, yeah, Good training. But again, it's obviously a, a cost and you've got to be penciled in. You didn't flirt with um, divorce by setting up an altitude tent in the bedroom then? Well, I, I have tried one of those in the past and this was years ago. And um, I'm not a great sleeper. And literally two nights of this gentle humming where I'd like, I had like no sleep. I thought physiologically, like it might be doing something with red blood cells, but mentally I'm just angry. So that it didn't last long. <laughs> Excellent. Well, um, Let's wrap things up. Uh, Jack, for you, are there any events on the horizon this summer? You've clearly got lots of fitness to play with. So uh, what's what's the plan for the next few months? Yeah, in a couple of weeks, I'm uh, doing a really tough Audax 318 kilometres with 6,400 metres of climbing from Chepstow in just to South Wales. Just to turn things up another notch. Yeah, it's um, it's called Devil's Hell. So I've seen there's a theme developing here uh, with sort of diabolically named uh, sportives and rides. Um, but yeah, that's that sounds really hard. Um, you go up uh, Gospel Pass twice, which is the highest. I think it's the highest paved road in Wales, if not in the UK, um, as well as the Tumble for good measure. 
and probably quite a few others thrown in there as well. Um, I'd like to tick off a 400 kilometre Audax before uh, doing a bit of gravel racing later in the year, and then yeah, um, building up building up the uh, the hill climb fitness again. Excellent. And and James, will you be back at the ETAP? Mm, well, not this weekend. <laughs> no, the this year I thought well I'm going to keep it sort of more informal. So like I, I mean I did a gravel event in the Cotswolds earlier in the year that was good. I've done a few run events. Uh, son and I are sort of doing a, a gravel weekend down in Cornwall. Not this weekend, the weekend after. But I'll have a few more things lined up that I haven't. There's nothing with the race number on. Yeah, I do want to do sort of like a bit more cyclocross sort of this winter. But I thought after last year's sort of, um, you know, struggles, I thought let's have a, a year of informality and then return in 2024. Olympic year. <laughs> Embracing the spirit of gravel rather than the, the suffer fest of the sportive. Uh, absolutely, yeah. <laughs> Excellent. Well, we'll wrap things up there. Thank you very much for listening. Hopefully this has been useful if you're preparing for an event. Um, do subscribe to the Bike Radar podcast. Send us an email if you've got a suggestion for a topic or if you have any feedback for us. We always love hearing from you. But before we wrap up, James, let's have one more plug for the book. Where can people buy it? Okay, you can get Riding with a Rocket Man where via Bloomsbury because they kindly published it. But all good bookshops online. And um, yeah, but yes, support your, support your local bookshop if they are selling my tome. <laughs> Excellent. Well, it's a very entertaining read and lots of great advice in there. So uh, yeah, let's wrap things up. Thanks for joining. James, great to have you on. Thanks, George. It was great. And Jack, I'm sure we'll be on uh, in, in the near future. Thanks, George. Excellent. Cheers, bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Bike Radar Podcast. If you've not done so already, please subscribe and share with your friends or leave us a rating if you've enjoyed this episode. 